Hey everyone, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I hope that you have some community around you to talk through these truths and concepts with. If you don't have community like that, we would love to invite you to be a part of Restore. You can get all the information about our church at restoreaustin.org. We would love to see you soon at one of our Sunday gatherings, and we hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Exactly four years ago today, I preached an election Sunday message called, Give to Caesar What is Caesar's. We looked at that famous quote from Jesus where he tells his followers to give to Caesar what is Caesar's and then give to God's what is God's. For us, that means we should give our government what belongs to them, our taxes, our votes, our overall political engagement, but that we should give to God what only belongs to him. That's our loyalty and our love. I also talked about how regardless of the outcome of that election, God would still be on his throne and still working to fulfill his mission of restoration of all things. I remember really vividly that after the message ended and after the service ended, I walked down and many of our more conservative church family members came up to me and said, thank you so much for that message, Zach. I really needed to hear it. I'm so worried about what's going to happen on Tuesday. I'm so worried about the direction of our country. Now, remember, at that point, every poll and every pundit was predicting a Hillary Clinton victory in a landslide. But then Election Day came and went with a very different outcome. And I woke up Wednesday morning to a slew of text messages and phone calls from our more progressive church family members saying, Zach, I thought you said everything was going to be okay. I thought you said God was on his throne. I thought you said he was working in his mission of restoration. I assured them that that was still true, that he was still on his throne, and that he was still working. But as Election Sunday creeped ever closer this year, over the last couple of months, I began to think and pray about what I should do this time. I considered ignoring it completely and just continuing in whatever series we were in. But honestly, that didn't really seem like the right thing to do. And it was not a, we weren't able to do it because God had somehow divinely placed it where a series was ending last week and a new one was starting next week. And we had this gap already there. I also considered just preaching basically the same message I preached four years ago because I still believe that it's true. But as I thought more about it, I realized that even though the message from four years ago was still true, it was incomplete. You see, even though I'd urged Christians to give our loyalty and love to God first, I realized that somewhere along the way, many of us have gotten it backwards. You see, we've given to God what is Caesar's, and we've given to Caesar what is God's. And it's way past time for us to make this right. One quick note before we get into today's message. You see, when I prep and teach during a normal week, I start every time by reading and praying through whatever scripture passage we're in. And as I read and pray, I'm searching for the one big idea that Jesus wants to share through me to our church family that week. I then focus in on that one idea and build everything else in the message around it. I also try to make it easy to remember so that you can go throughout your next week and be helped by whatever it is we discussed. Today's message is not like that. It has a few different big ideas. It has a few different key takeaways. We're going to be covering a lot of ground this morning. And I think it would be really beneficial for you to take notes. If you have a phone, if you've got an old school paper and pencil, whatever it is, I think it would be really beneficial for you to write some things down. 
I tell you all that because despite the title, this message is not just about how you vote. It's about political engagement in general. Why I believe we should be engaged politically as Christians, how we've too often done it poorly, and how we can do it better now and in the future. So buckle up. Here we go. Now, if you've been around our church for a while, you know I've never spoken positively or negatively about a politician or a political party from the stage, and I won't be starting that today. Why? Well, first, because I'm bound by the Johnson Amendment, which prohibits nonprofit organizations from endorsing or opposing political candidates. But more importantly, I just don't find it helpful. You see, as soon as I start talking about a politician or a party, I immediately divide the audience, and that is the opposite of what I am trying to do today. My goal is to bring unity and clarity to Christians who are wondering how they should vote and, more broadly, how they should engage politically. But even though I won't be talking about a politician or a party today, you can rest assured I will be talking about politics and political issues This is not the first or the last time I will talk politics from the stage. In fact, I think there's a case to be made that I touch on politics every single week that I preach because scripture has political implications. Jesus has political implications. When people feel I'm being too political or more to the point, when they feel I'm teaching something that contradicts their preferred party or politician, I'll usually get texts or emails with the ever popular phrase, Zach, just preach the gospel. To those folks, I simply ask, what part of life should the gospel not affect? Shouldn't the good news of Jesus Christ change everything? Shouldn't the scriptures inform how we live every part of our lives? Frankly, I get really frustrated with the just preach the gospel crowd and how narrow their view of the gospel really is. If we strip the good news of Jesus down to only personal spirituality, we create a gospel that is unrecognizable from the one that Jesus lived and taught. The true gospel changes everything. In the book of Mark, widely considered to be the first gospel account recorded, the first words out of Jesus' mouth are, the time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand. Just that word, kingdom, was incredibly political in the first century Roman world. Jesus is claiming that he has come to usher in the kingdom of God. That was a declaration that the Roman kingdom, the Roman empire, was not of God and that it was on its way out. Now, we don't call political units kingdoms anymore, so it's difficult for us to understand just how politically significant the kingdom of God language really was. So if we update it to our modern vernacular, we could easily hear Jesus saying something like, the time has come, the government of God is at hand, or the United States of Jesus Christ is at hand. Jesus was making a radical political statement. And with that statement, Jesus started his revolution. And obviously, his revolution wasn't only political, it was spiritual too, and it was social too, but my point remains the same. Saying that Jesus and the kingdom of God aren't political is a ridiculously unbiblical statement. Now, if you aren't convinced by Jesus' first words, consider Jesus' first sermon. At the very beginning of his public ministry, he goes back to his hometown of Nazareth to teach in the synagogue there. Here's what he says. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, 
and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus says he's come to bring freedom and support to the poor, the prisoners, the sick, and the oppressed. He says that he is going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That phrase, the year of the Lord's favor, harkens back to a Jewish practice called the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee occurred every 50 years. And during this time, all the slaves would be free, all land would be returned, and all debts would be canceled. The year of Jubilee was a return back to God's original intent for his world. A place where everyone is completely equal. Everyone rests in God's love and there is abundant goodness in all things and between all things. Jesus is declaring that he has come to bring the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee to fruition, not just once every 50 years, but every single day from that moment forward. Has a more political sermon ever been preached? I don't know. And this isn't just some random one from Jesus. This is him laying out his mission statement. This is the equivalent of a politician going to their hometown to announce that they're running for major office and giving a speech detailing exactly what they hope to accomplish when they get there. Jesus lays out his mission statement and then he says, Today, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And oh yeah, when he says good news at the beginning of that sermon, it's the word gospel. The gospel of Jesus is political. And contrary to popular belief, Jesus was not a centrist. He didn't both sides everything. He didn't sit in the uncontroversial middle trying not to upset anyone. He just refused to conform his life, work, and politics to any earthly categories at all. Jesus spent his whole life challenging the two most powerful political entities at the time, the Jewish temple and the Roman government. And in the end, these two political entities conspired together to have him illegally arrested, unjustly tried, and then murdered on the cross. The cross was how the Roman government executed political dissidents. They used it because it was so painful and so public that they hoped to deter anyone who witnessed it from the same political rebellion of the one hanging on it. So Jesus began his gospel ministry with a political proclamation, laid out his gospel mission with a political agenda, and then they tried to end his gospel life with a political execution. But they couldn't, could they? Not even death could hold Jesus and the kingdom of God down. He overcame death with life and he rose from the grave. So maybe instead of just preach the gospel and stop being so political, maybe we should say don't preach the gospel. It's so political it might get you killed. Now when people say just preach the gospel or or don't get political, I try to believe the best. And I try to believe that they are actually saying don't be partisan and I would agree with that wholeheartedly. Jesus never aligned himself fully with any political party or ideology, but I hope you see just how active politically Jesus really was. The gospel isn't partisan, but it's incredibly, incredibly political. You see, we get our word politics from the Greek word politika, which means the affairs of the city. 
Politics are the process of making decisions that affect the everyday lives of people in our cities, our country, and our world. Politics and government are all around us. So they are not. So statements like just preach the gospel and don't get political are not only unbiblical, they're totally unrealistic. There is no part of our lives that aren't affected by the gospel and by the political implications of it. In her brilliant new book, The Liturgy of Politics, Caitlin Schess paints a picture of just how political our everyday lives really are. Here's what she says. Our common life together will always involve the government in some way. When we wake up in the morning, our eyes open in neighborhoods that are determined by politics. The racial and ethnic makeup of our communities aren't an accident. They are greatly influenced by government decisions about zoning laws and a long history of legal segregation. The schools we attend are also implicated. Local and national policies affect the opportunities our neighbors have access to. The stores we shop at are governed by policies that protect or neglect workers and businesses. The food we buy is influenced by policies that subsidize or regulate food industries. The cars we drive require gas, an industry with significant political implications for foreign policy and environmental law. If we're truly concerned about our neighbors, then we'll inevitably come into contact with even more political questions. When we work at a local food pantry, we're working amidst a number of regulations that determine how nonprofits function. We're interacting with a problem, poverty, that has varied political causes and varied political solutions. When we help local refugee children learn English, we're sitting across the table from children whose lives have been greatly dictated by politics. The conflicts that harmed them, the way the United States processes refugees, the number we accept, and the benefits they can access. When our churches support a prison ministry, they are operating in the web of decades of criminal justice politics. Whether or not we even serve in any of these capacities is often determined not just by our own preference, but by the politics determining the proximity we have to any of these marginalized populations. Likewise, when the youth group has to bus kids to the other side of the tracks to find a nonprofit to serve alongside, that's politics. Our lived theology has political consequences. Our lived theology has political consequences. Not a day goes by for any of us that isn't affected by politics. We couldn't completely disengage from them if we wanted to. Now, when we announced today's message, I thought we would have a lot of pushback, honestly. People thinking that it was just a ploy to grab attention or people getting upset that we were bringing politics into the pulpit. And that's happened a little bit. But the largest chorus of voices are from people who are so thankful we're doing this. And I guess it shouldn't be surprising Because for the last few years, I've had so many conversations with folks struggling through major political differences with their loved ones. Just this past week, I talked with someone who told me that their family canceled seeing each other this holiday season, not because of COVID, but because of their differences around this election. So many of us are wondering, How can people who love the same Jesus and read the same scriptures have such radical differences politically? I'm convinced it's because many Christians have a disorder when it comes to politics. We have disordered our loyalty and we have disordered our love. We have placed partisan loyalties above kingdom loyalties and we have placed love of self above love of neighbor. Let me say that again. We have a disorder Many of us have placed partisan loyalties above kingdom loyalties, and we have placed love of self 
above love of neighbor. Far too many of us are more discipled by Fox News or MSNBC than by Scripture. Far too many of us are more devoted to our political party than our church family. And far too many of us are more faithful followers of a politician than we are of Jesus. We have disordered our loyalty and our love. And listen to me, the consequences have been catastrophic. We've all seen this firsthand, right? We've seen family members who claim to follow Jesus completely ignore his teachings in defense of their political preferences. We've seen friends make excuses for their preferred politician's behavior, even when it's completely antithetical to Christianity. We've even seen pastors turn their backs on the way of Jesus at the whiff of political power. Throughout history, this disorder has led to Christians not only tacitly approving, but even leading the charge in horrors like slavery, Jim Crow, the subjugation of women, ex-gay therapy, and a myriad of other oppressions. Christian philosopher James Smith says this, political and social allegiances trump religious allegiances all the time. Whether in presidential primaries, under the grotesque shadow of the lynching tree, or in horrifying cases like the Rwandan genocide. We have a disorder. Now some have claimed that our disorder was cured decades ago. But they are wrong. Our disordered loyalty and love is still wreaking havoc today. Because how can we stand up for gospel truth when we've been led to believe that all truth is relative? And determined by whoever's speaking at the time most persuasively. How can we participate in Jesus' gospel mission to bring life and life abundantly to all people when the only lives that matter to the party we're loyal to are the ones that help them get elected? We can't. I don't mean this to sound harsh, but I believe that it's true. You cannot follow Jesus with disordered love and loyalty. You cannot follow Jesus with disordered loyalty and love. You can call yourself a Christian. You can check that evangelical box on a survey. You can even grab that hellfire insurance or that get into heaven free card if that's how you believe this whole thing works. But you cannot follow Jesus with disordered loyalty and love. You see, Jesus said, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. He said, do not love the world or the things in this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 John 4, 8, whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. We cannot follow Jesus with disordered loyalty and love. And when it comes to politics... This stuff that affects the everyday lives of ourselves and everyone else, far too many Christians have placed partisan loyalty above kingdom loyalty and love of self above love of neighbor. So what I'm advocating for this morning is a reordering of our love and our loyalty. We must place kingdom loyalty and love of neighbor above party loyalty and love of self because that is the way of Jesus. The persecutor of Christians turned pastor named Paul talks about love and loyalty in his New Testament letter to the church in Philippi. Now, fascinating to understand a little bit more about the Philippian church. It was actually the first church started by Paul in Eastern Europe. We know this from Acts chapter 16. And Philippi was a Roman 
colony filled with a lot of um, ex-Roman soldiers and ex-Roman politicians. And so it was known for its patriotic nationalism for Rome. And because of their patriotic nationalism, Paul encountered major resistance there for claiming that Jesus was the true king, not Caesar, who was bringing about a new kingdom, not Rome. Fast forward a few years and Paul finds himself in prison. One of the many times he ends up there proclaiming that same political message about Jesus and the kingdom of God that got Jesus killed. And it's from prison that Paul writes the letter that we now have called Philippians. The whole letter is about how to live life as a follower of Jesus, how to trust the Holy Spirit even when things get difficult, and how to keep our love and our loyalty ordered correctly. Paul starts off by telling the Philippians about how he has suffered for the gospel, imprisonments, beatings, banishments, and more. He knows they are suffering too. Remember, Philippi is not friendly to the message of a new king and a new kingdom. First, Paul talks about loyalty. When you suffer for being loyal to the kingdom of God, there's a temptation to turn away from it, right? And to place your loyalty somewhere else. But Paul urges them not to do that. Philippians 1, starting in verse 27. Whatever happens, he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Regardless of what happens, Paul tells them to stay devoted to the gospel, to stand firm in their loyalty to Jesus and to God's kingdom. He also tells them that when they do that, they should do it together in unity so that they will not be afraid when opposition comes. Then he talks about what kind of love the church should have. He says, therefore, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort in his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, basically he's saying, if you are really committed to this following Jesus thing, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Paul says that they should value other people above themselves. Now this is right in line with Jesus' teaching too. Remember, he's asked by the religious leaders what the most important thing in the world is. And he says, love God and love your neighbor. We are called to stand firm in our loyalty to the kingdom and to love others more than ourselves. Now, I want to point out something that's kind of easy to miss in this passage we just looked at. Paul actually mentions two things that can often lead to disordering our loyalty and our love. Did you catch them? They're fear and selfishness. Paul tells these Christians not to be frightened, and he tells them not to be selfish. Why? Because fear and selfishness are incompatible with the way of Jesus. Did you know that the most often repeated command in scripture is do not fear? That's basically because fear is a reality in our broken world. But even though we will inevitably be afraid, we must not let fear be our motivating factor for anything, especially for political engagement. Here's Caitlin Chess again. Fear is fundamentally antisocial. Our fear causes us to protect ourselves above the common good of community. 
Adam and Eve hid in the garden for fear of God instead of entering into reconciliatory community with him. Peter denied his relationship with Jesus out of fear. Esther battled fear that would have prompted her to protect herself instead of standing with her community. The fact that fear is a strong motivator does not mean that these are not real issues with serious effects that should concern us. But it does mean that we have to understand the deep effect it can have on us psychologically and spiritually. It's no wonder then that so much of scripture is devoted to fighting fear. Not merely for the personal inner peace we can gain, but for the sake of the community around us. Our fear easily isolates and pits us against each other in a contest for security and safety. And God continually commands us not to fear, but to trust him, the creator and sustainer of the community into which we are called. Now, make no mistake about it. Politicians and political parties are all too aware of how fear can be used to secure our loyalty. Each party is trying to convince you that what is wrong in the world is the fault of the other party and their policies. They paint cataclysmic pictures of what electing the wrong person or the wrong party will mean. Now listen, I believe there are major issues facing our country right now. And I believe this election will have a serious impact on our ability to either come together and solve these issues or fracture even further apart and make our problems worse. But I will not be bullied by fear into believing that one election determines the fate of our world. Because that's not the biblical way. That's not the way of Jesus. As Paul said, we must stand firm in the face of fear for the kingdom of God. We must also reject self-love and embrace loving others. The Christian organization Lifeway surveyed registered evangelicals back in September about a myriad of political issues. One of the questions they asked was, who do you hope your presidential vote benefits most? Who do you hope your presidential vote benefits most? Almost 70% of people chose themselves or people who are like them. 70%. Of people said that they hope their presidential vote benefits themselves or people just like them. Those are evangelical Christians. That is the opposite of valuing others above ourselves. It's the opposite of loving our neighbor. When we vote and engage politically, we need to think way less about ourselves and way more about others. Especially those that Jesus talked about in Matthew 25. When he says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothes you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you and listen? The king will reply. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did for me. Now notice Jesus doesn't say, whatever you did for your political party, you did for me. He doesn't say, whatever you did for America, you did for me. He doesn't say, whatever you did for yourself, you did for me. No, Jesus says, whatever you did for these brothers and sisters who are oppressed and marginalized and in need, you did for me. 
Now at this point, I hope we can agree on a few things. Number one, I hope we can agree that a Christian should engage politically. This has been true since the very beginning when God made humanity and placed them in the Garden of Eden. Do you remember what he said to them? Genesis 1:28. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Fill the earth and rule over it, other translations say. It's not a sin to engage politically. Quite the opposite. It's sinful to abdicate our God-given responsibility to govern in ways that promote flourishing for the world and everyone in it. Now, I'm not saying it's a sin not to vote. I know people who have conscious objections to voting or choose not to vote out of protest for the way we elect people or the two-party system or even the candidates on the ballot. That's not my personal conviction, but I understand why people choose that route. But as I said at the beginning, I believe not voting or not engaging politically because you just want to preach the gospel is a complete misunderstanding of what the gospel is and what following Jesus is all about. If you've heard a pastor preach against political engagement by quoting verses about our citizenship being in heaven, my guess is they conveniently left out how our heavenly citizenship is connected to our calling here on earth. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yes, our citizenship is in heaven, but our calling is to participate in God's plan to make the glories of heaven a reality here on earth. Our calling is not to just simply sit here and wait till we get to heaven. Our calling is to help bring heaven to earth. And a huge part of how we do that is through political engagement. So that's number one. The second thing I hope we can agree on is that a Christian's loyalty should be to God's kingdom first. This doesn't mean that a Christian can't belong to a political party. We have people here at Restore who are not only in them, but have run for major office from both major parties. Parties are not the problem. Blind party allegiance is the problem. Party loyalty above kingdom loyalty is the problem. I love what Michael Ware says. He says, we should be members of a political party because we believe things. We should not believe things because we are members of a political party. I love that. As scripture teaches, we must seek first God's kingdom. Everything else must come second. Belonging to a party is fine or believing in a politician is fine, but it should never be primary. Our loyalty must be to God and his kingdom's purposes above all else. That's number two. And the last thing I hope we can agree on is that a Christian's love should be for our neighbors above ourselves. Paul said that in humility, we are to value others above ourselves. Jesus said the most important thing is to love God and love our neighbor. A professor of mine at Dallas Seminary tweeted this recently, and I thought it was perfectly said. Remember, the question isn't, is this action leftist or right-wing, liberal or conservative, socialist or capitalist? The question is, does this action love my neighbor and look out for their interests more than my own? If we just asked ourselves that question before we did everything, including political engagement, our world would be transformed. Loving others isn't some disembodied act of spiritual kindness. It's not just waving at people when you see them on the street. Loving our neighbor means fighting against anything that keeps them from experiencing life and life abundantly. I believe those three things are mandates and they are clear for the followers of Jesus. So the only question left we have to answer is how do we do that? 
Now, I wish the answer was quick and pithy, but it's not. Reordering our love and loyalty requires time and effort and intentionality. We must put practices in place which continually remind us that our loyalty is to God's kingdom and our love is for our neighbor. But I have a few ideas I brought with me today. Number one, spend more time reading scripture than reading the news. Spend more time reading scripture than reading the news. Now, if you've listened so far, you obviously know I'm not advocating for burying our heads in the sand. But we should be more formed by scripture than by media. Then when we consume news and information, which I believe that you should, we are able to properly filter it through the truth of scripture. And don't just read scripture in isolation. Read it and discuss it with other people, people who are different than you. That helps you from only seeing it through your own biased worldview. Which leads me to my next suggestion. Spend more time in healthy and diverse Christian community than unhealthy partisan community. Like I said a few minutes ago, far too many partisan communities prey on fear. They rile you up with stories of imminent doom if you don't do exactly what they tell you to do right now. They also become echo chambers where you only get affirmed and never get challenged about what you believe and why you believe it. Next, spend more money on helping people in need than on stuff you don't need. Spend more money on helping people in need than on stuff you don't need. Money is one of the great loyalty stealers in our world. I can't tell you how many Christians I've heard say something like, well, I don't like this party or this politician. I know they do some really bad stuff, but they're good for my bank account. So I guess I'll vote for them. Excuse me? Self-interest, especially financial self-interest, should never be the motivating factor for Christians. Generosity starts to untangle us from the clutches of money and it stops the life-sucking cycle of consumerism. When we start to see our money the way God sees it, something we use to take care of our loved ones and to serve those in need, everything changes. Next, Spend more time praying than posting on social media. This one may just be for me particularly, but I hope it helps all of you as well. Spend more time praying than posting on social media. Now, there are some good parts of social media, and there are some soul-sucking parts of it too. But numerous studies have shown that extended time on social media leads to decreased levels of happiness and satisfaction. Praying does the opposite. Being still and quiet in the presence of God is life-giving. There's so much joy to be had in that place, especially when we do it with sisters and brothers together. Next, spend more effort trying to understand the perspective of others than trying to convince them of your own. Spend more time trying to understand the perspective of others than trying to convince them of your own perspective. If you want to love people, you have to listen to them. And I don't just mean waiting until they're done so you can talk. I mean actually listening. Like when they finish sharing, ask them a question. And then when they answer that one, ask them another question. You know, Jesus asked 307 questions during his lifetime. You know how many he directly answered? Three. 307 to three. If Jesus can listen and engage like that, then so can we. Listening to someone else, especially to their story, is the quickest way to allow love to grow between you and that other person. If we are called to love our neighbors, we have to listen to them. Now lastly, 
spend more energy pursuing justice for the oppressed than pursuing the approval of the powerful. Spend more of your time, energy, and money pursuing justice for the oppressed than pursuing the approval of the powerful. I am so sick of seeing prominent Christians cozy up to politicians because of the promise of power. Loyalty to God's kingdom and love of neighbor go right out the window when we start making our political decisions on how we can keep or gain power. We should be using whatever power we have to help those who don't have any, not spending our time trying to gain more power by compromising our loyalty and our love. Now that list is not exhaustive. It's just a few things that will help us get started on the right track. But I do believe that these things will help us properly order our loyalty and our love. Because listen, y'all, it is only with a loyalty to the kingdom of God and a love that is for our neighbors that we can engage politically in Christ-like ways. If you haven't voted yet, I'm encouraging you to go vote on Tuesday. Not for the perfect candidates, because they don't exist, but for the candidates who are most committed to helping all people experiencing the flourishing life that God desires for them. And this means, as Paul said, not looking to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then I want you to remember that Christian political engagement is so much more than voting. It means advocating and mobilizing. It means fighting against corruption and injustice. And most of all, it means fulfilling our gospel imperative to care for the poor, the oppressed, and the marginalized. We are called to use our vote, our politics, and our entire lives for the kingdom of God and for the good of others. There will certainly be times when fellow Christians disagree on how best to do that. But we should never agree, disagree on what we're supposed to be doing. One of our core values here at Restore is diversity. And one of our most naturally diverse areas is political preference. So before I pray and close, I want to read a little benediction over our church family. It's adapted from something that New York pastor Rich Viotas told his congregation a couple of weeks ago. Here's what it is. No matter how you vote, you are welcome in our church. I just ask that you would commit to see politics through Jesus and not Jesus through your politics. That you would be curious about why your brothers and sisters see things differently, not make assumptions about them. And that you would love Jesus and one another more than anything else. Let's pray. God, thank you for just being with us this morning. Wherever we're watching from, however we're engaging, maybe we're driving in the car or laying in bed or sitting on the couch or up here at the studio. Wherever we are, God, we know you're there. When we walk into the ballot box, we know you're there. When we engage politically every day, the rest of our lives, we know that you are there, God. So I pray, I beg, God, that we would trust you that we would reorder our loyalty and our love in the ways that you've called us to do that. That our loyalty would be to you and to your kingdom and that our love would be for our neighbor and that when we vote, when we engage politically, when we live every moment of our lives, we would do so 
with those things in mind. God, move in our hearts. Break them if they are hardened. Break them if they are loyal to something other than your kingdom and break them if they are in love with self above love of others. Tenderize us, God. Help us to follow you as we live our lives. May the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ change every single part of us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.